Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As the United States commemorated the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people in New York, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, and thousands more first responders, uh, soldiers, and uh, others over the past several decades, the COVID pandemic charges on killing nearly 660,000 Americans and some 4.6 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss the week on world markets, but also to focus on the defense, aerospace, and other lessons since 9-11 are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm, Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy. Guys, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Margo. Thanks. Thanks, as always, for having us, Fargo. Yeah, great to be on, Fargo. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much. And, and kudos uh, to Ron, uh, who actually made it into the office uh, last week. We're looking forward. Uh, we're all looking forward to hearing about your road trip, uh, Ron, uh, in a moment. But before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And I should point out that Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and trade show that was conducted recently. Ron, uh, let's uh, start uh, with you. You uh, actually made it into the office, so that's kind of really, really exciting. Uh, Just give us a week on uh, the market, what was driving it, and also what it was like returning to the office for the first time in about 18 months or so. Yeah, so it was, uh, honestly, it was the first time I was allowed in the building in in quite some time. So, but, you know, uh, honestly, you know, the the commute in, you know, wasn't, how it was pre-pandemic because still not a lot of people are going into the city and you know our building wasn't fully populated i don't know exactly how many uh, folks are are back um the bank of america does have a a, a reasonably strict policy around um, returning to the office and being vaccinated and so on and so forth and uh, I, I don't know exactly how they're handling the unvaccinated versus unvaccinated but the folks in the office are largely vaccinated right that's that's the policy um, so anyway, I mean, it wasn't, you know, going back in New York was nice. Being in the office was, was nice. Um, um, it's kind of nice to get, you know, some semblance of, of, of that back. Um, you know, the week on, on the markets, it was you know, kind of a, a funny week, right? Because it was a shortened week. Um, you know, when you look at you know, the broader uh, performance, the S&P was down uh, just under uh, 2%, you know, it was down about, you know, 1.7%. Um, most of the A&D group was down. Uh, kind of, kind of across the board. If you look at Boeing, it's sort of a bellwether for commercial. You know, it was down about three and a half percent. And then Northrop has an interesting bellwether on defense. Northrop or Lockheed, they were both down around three percent. The names that did better than the broader market and the rest of the group were the ones with some aftermarket exposure. Uh, you know, in my world, that would be you know Raytheon Technologies and uh, Transdime. Uh, they were they were down on the week, but less than the market. They were down less than the percent. So it was a relatively subdued week. Um, the other things we track, you know, are, are oil prices. Oil prices are back around um, the seventy dollar level, uh, and then interest rates are have this steady cadence up again, right? So you know, they kind of they they you know we peaked at you know the uh, uh, call it maybe one point seven on the ten year. We fell all the way back down to 1.2%. And now we're steadily kind of we're approaching kind of the 1.4 level. Um, and then, you know, given the talk about inflation and this and that and the other thing, it looks like we're back into an environment where we're going to start to see interest rates rising again. Um, and, you know, yeah, I'm not a fixed income and currency strategist, so I can't tell you where they're going to go. But it does look like we're back in an upward trend on interest rates. Um, and are investors worried at all about what's going on in Washington about the $3.5 trillion uh, Democratic spending measure debt and all of that? I mean, is that starting to permeate? Right. I mean, there's the, the good news. Uh, it looks like the budget's going to be a pretty strong defense budget uh, with a lot of investment in future capabilities. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it, it looks like, um, you know, all eyes are on whether or not we do the $1.2 trillion or the $1.2 trillion and the $3.5 trillion. I mean, where, where's the... You know, and, and then yeah, all of the that, debt issues that go with it, right? I mean, whether or not we raise the borrowing ceiling, et cetera. I think the, 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 the conversation has more focused uh, on the tax front. Uh, and that's not specific to just, you know, aerospace and defense companies, but uh, to, you know, kind of uh, all companies. 
uh, you know, it's interesting for defense companies because they have the, how can I say, the very favorable tax treatment where their R&D, uh, which comes in as revenue, uh, is counted as an expense for tax purposes, right? So it's, they're, they're unique in that they're some of the few companies in the world can actually deduct revenue on their taxes as long as it's earmarked as, um, as, uh, as uh, R&D. And, you know, the change in the tax code had, you know, the R&D tax credit um, just changing, right, where they could deduct 100% of it. And then you go to this, you know, now they would only be able to do uh, 20% of it. And then, you know, per year of a given year, and it would take five years to get back to roughly 100% with 20% per year over the previous five years. That's a lot in one sentence. But the point is, there's been some discussion on that. Um, and some discussion on tax, not so much on the 3.5 billion and what impact that could have if that were to pass. Um, and on that front, it's interesting. You maybe um, the, the the previous podcast talked about it. It seems like there's a fair amount of back and forth within the Democratic Party on what what could be in that and so on and so forth. So we'll see. Um, Sash, uh, let me bring you into the conversation and and just give us your sense on what you thought were needle movers this week, headlines you were watching. Um, and, and anything else that you had on your on your mind is, um, you know, we, we went through what is kind of a transitional week. I mean, this week is going to be DSCI. Uh, unfortunately, it's the first time in a long time I haven't attended, in part because of, you know, whole series of un- uncertainties uh, with what the show was going to look like and, and, and all that. But you're going to be uh, in attendance, and that's always a flagship event, maybe a little bit subdued this year uh, as to, you know, how, how how big and bold it would be in, in years past, but sort of give us your sense on what you're tracking. Yeah, okay. I mean, it was a very, very, you know, mixed week. Actually, the week ended pretty badly. I mean, you know, most of most of the European stocks and, um, and the international stocks ended the week down, uh, you know, just on Friday alone, just down a percent or so. So it was a, it was a, it was a pretty tough week. And, there's, uh, you know, just looking at the screen, there's not a lot in the stocks that we look at that discriminates between civil and military, which is fascinating. Um, uh, because, you know, normally you've got a block of blue and a block of red and and you can work out which market is being favoured by investors. But this week, everything, you know, had a fairly poor end to the week. Just looking at air traffic, the interesting thing about this week, capacity globally down about 0.7 of a percent. Um, China, you know, very, very hard to read at the moment. Very, very volatile, but probably coming off a bit. The US, you've got the Labor Day effect, which will probably take another week or so before we work out how sustainable current levels of US traffic are. Europe, flat to down. But the really interesting thing I think this week was uh, the degree to which we started to get mergers and acquisitions uh, activity in airlines. And EasyJet, you know, which is one of the big three European low-cost carriers, was you know, announced that it had received and immediately rejected a bid from someone else, quotes, unquote. The someone else was reported widely, but I think Reuters broke the story first as being Wizair, which is definitely one of the other three big low-cost carriers. Um, EasyJet is based in stock market terms in the UK. Wizair, although quoted in the UK, is very much a, a, an Eastern European low-cost. And then you've got Ryanair, um, you know, domiciled in... Uh, uh, in Ireland, but clearly, you know, a, a, an absolute giant in terms of the low cost. But, you know, to have two of the lowest co- cost carriers involved in, in M&A, even though it was squashed very, very quickly, that's fascinating. And there, there's just some evidence that the low cost carriers in Europe are starting to prepare themselves for what they hope is a very smart recovery and that they want to dominate in terms of capacity offered at an at a low price and really beat the hell out of the flag carriers that's a, that's admirable that's what low-cost carriers should be doing there's a story that Wizz Air might be going to buy another 100 or so uh airbus a321 neos um that would entirely fit with that um and Ryanair continues its wonderful spat with Boeing, where Ryanair says, Boeing, you're charging too much. We're not going to buy your lousy aircraft, although we really want to buy them. And Boeing says, we're not going to take your lousy prices. It's great copy. I, you know, I hope it goes on for months, frankly. But um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to escape the conclusion that uh, Ryanair has actually probably called the market a little bit late and if the low-cost carriers are going to win in whatever upturn we get in 2022, 2023, 2024, Ryanair needs more capacity than they currently have on order, and they were being too cute on the cycle and too cute on prices, 
and they're going to get it wrong. Either that or everybody else is going to get it wrong. Uh, but, you know, really watching those three low-cost carriers in Europe um, perform, you know, or, you know uh, uh, compete against each other this week in terms of, uh, um, you know, news headlines and so forth was absolutely fascinating. And just one thing, you know, EasyJet rejects a, a bid from Wizair and then says, by the way, to, to shareholders, we'd like a billion and a half of new equity from you, please. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting proposition of itself. Uh, that's that's the kind of boldness uh, and utterly, if I if I may use the term shamelessness, that you just can't help but admire at the at, at the uh, at, at the end of the day. So I mean, certainly uh, an, <laughs> yeah. an unfolding drama, uh, well well worth uh, well worth tracking. Um, Richard, uh, you can talk about anything you want to talk about, but I think you should talk to the audience about your terrific uh, monthly newsletter. It's it's always uh, a uh, one of the best written things in the industry, but also one of the most thought-provoking. Uh, and uh, your your sign-off was great, right? Yours, yours till we get a less depressing future. Uh, but more broadly, talk to us about why 2021 and 1967 look enough alike that it's worth studying both years and drawing some conclusions about what we should be seeing next. Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, before I uh, I respond to your kind request, I, I would just add to Sasha's comments that uh, no mention of Ryanair is complete without O'Leary uh, discussing the prospect of Comac being a supplier, which I find one of the funnier, I guess, uh, <laughs> sub-themes of the whole thing. And I, I, When he first announced this, which I think was a decade ago, a Boeing executive turned to me and said, I'd like to meet a Ryanair engineer who can verify this and the aircraft performance. And here we are still later using the Chinese as a stocking horse. So I completely agree with what uh, Sash said. They might have waited a little too, uh, a little too long to join in the bottom of the market. But thanks ask, for asking about my letter. You know, I, I really like talking with, well, older people. And uh, not very long ago, I had a terrific conversation with Adam Polarski over at Avitas, who used to be the chief economist at McDonnell Douglas. And he was explaining one reason that 1967 was such a moment of crisis for Douglas was that they ran out of cash in the midst of a absolutely fantastic market. And I said, how can that be? And he said, it was simple. You also had a remarkable run-up in the military market, which was purely cost plus, whereas the commercial market was, well, uh, <laughs> fixed price. Uh, you know, it, you basically had to do a really good job of gauging what your costs would be when it came time to sign a price contract, and they didn't because, well, they were crowded out. Uh, the military folks could pay people, most importantly, uh, whatever they needed to get the job done. And F4 production ramped up to 72 per month that year. Amazing figure when you think about it. You know, two months of F4 output uh, would be the absolute maximum we'll achieve with the F35. So, you know, they were going hell bent for leather on building military aircraft. They could pay workers whatever they wanted uh, because it was all reimbursed. Anyway, I, I can't help but think that. But we should also say, right, I mean, that was at, at you know, P Vietnam War uh, peak, right? And that airplane was the Joint Strike Fighter of its day, serving in the Marine Corps, the Navy, as well as in the Air Force and, and allies and partners around the world. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, it, yeah, but it, just it, far more impressive and better looking, in my humble opinion. Uh, if, if you're on the Navy or Marine side, you thought that if you were the Air Force side, you deeply resented the jointness of it and uh, being forced to take that aircraft and uh, God Cle knows that. Change, right? You know, it's, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it, things, things kind of get, uh, well, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, doesn't it? Um, you know, you can't help but see an echo of that because right now pricing has been extremely deflationary in the jetliner business. Matter of fact, according to the three or four terrific sources for realized pricing in jetliners, man, things took a hit last year and it's tough to get pricing power back. Meantime, we might not have inflation in energy. We might not have inflation in materials, but we sure as hell are seeing it in labor. And in particular, aerospace labor, because military spending is at a post-war high it looks like it's going to keep going upwards, particularly for the more high-tech aspects of the uh, of the defense industrial base. All of this, uh, plus the cash pouring into urban air mobility, I don't think it's sustainable, but boy, there's so much money going in, so many people being hired. You, all of this is a recipe for the commercial market being crowded out and for, well, having to build jets uh, at a higher than expe expected cost basis. 
this is this could get a bit messy. And again, a repeat of 1967 when um, you know things were fantastic, except for the uh, the horrible losses resulting from well trying to compete against the military side for resources while dealing with a deflationary pricing environment. Um, I, I uh, just want to say first, as much as I love the F4 Phantom and it is one of my favorite uh, jets of all time, uh, I am going to have to give this to the F-35 to be a much more capable platform, uh, both as a sensor platform and as a strike platform. Alas, even though I love uh, the the Rhino or, or the Double Ugly or any other um, subriquette you want to put on the airplane. And, and yeah, but Falco, okay, there's Richard, 60 right? years between them. Yes, for, yes, for yes. And who doesn't love sixty years ago? Wow! I, I think it's I think it's absolutely terrific. But I'm also an F one hundred five fan because I think the Thud was one of the coolest airplanes uh, in in uh, in history. Alas, long list A one Sky Raider. You and I were in Duxford uh, watching one uh, in in fact USS uh, Intrepid colors uh, going going through the motions. Getting more focused back to our conversation, uh, Richard, because we could spend an entire program talking about how with the airplanes we love. I know uh, the Javelin Sash is one of your all-time favorites. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> where where were we? Oh yes, Delta Wings. Uh, a whole a whole bunch of uh, new. Uh, programs, right? I mean, as you said, right, T7 is going on at the same time legacy programs are going on at the same time that whatever it is that Lockheed will soon be building uh, in its Palmdale, you know, brand new, uh, innovative, flexible manufacturing facility out there at Skunk Works, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, uh, both that we know and, and that we, uh, we can only uh, guess uh, about. Um, Ron, just give you an opportunity to comment on all of this before we transition to sort of the um, 9-11 portion of, of our of our discussion, unless you guys think there are other things that we need to cover as well. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I mean, on, on that topic, I think we've covered it pretty well. Uh, Sash, anything you want to cover back on, including my rather snipish uh, joke about your love of the Javelin? No, I'm, I'm not going to rise uh, to your comments about the Javelin. <laughs> I, um, I'm, no, I'm just not going to rise. I, I, I think that would be... Um, I, I, I don't think it's it's... It would be worthy of either of us. Um, actually, you are. Just, you are let's just say, I'm, I'm, you are I'm, I'm, I'm biting. I'm biting. Very an important hard. evolutionary. <laughs> an important yeah. evolutionary step. Let's let's now just the, leave it at the that. The javelin, the javelin, with led by a Vulcan, was part of the Delta of Deltas uh, flying display. <laughs> I think back uh, sometime. Oh, in yeah. It's fantastic, yeah. isn't it? Um, I've just got one question for Richard, actually, because I, I, I find this inflation thesis, the degree to which inflation in our, quotes, unquote, industry is actually driven by inflation outside, you know, the, the area of focus at the time. Um, and your comment about urban mobility, uh, air mobility and, you know, presumably also commercial space driving um, very, very uh, pernicious inflation in terms of wage costs, I think is is really interesting. The thing that I suspect may have changed in civil aerospace just a little bit, and I think it might be, and, I, and I've been thinking about this ever since I, I read your letter, actually. Uh, the thing that may have changed over the last 50 years or so is that at least now the uh, civil aerospace companies have price escalation clauses. And although they're not perfect because they're attached to an inflation index that actually doesn't represent their costs, it represents the other side's costs. That's right. Um, but, but at least there are um, escalation clauses which give a little bit more protection against inflation than they would otherwise than they would have had and i wonder whether that was actually one of the most important lessons of the late 60s and early 70s well i you know i think there's some some truth to that except that uh, very often you know labor isn't singled out as a a major Matter of fact, I think uh, Ron put out a note on Labor Day pointing this out, that very often pass-through protections don't include labor. It's usually materials or energy, seldom labor, obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, Ron. But the other thing is that my real concern is actually long-term engineering, because we're going to see the most spectacular and hellish inflation, although not bad if you're an engineer, in engineering. And a lot of that is just the increase in RDT&E in the defense budget. Part of it is that, you know, massive ramp up in uh, SPAC funded engineer hiring among the urban air mobility types. 
all of this is an argument that basically they're going to be competitively priced out in the commercial business of innovation. That it's it's just going to become prohibitively expensive as the cost of engineering inflates, especially given the terrible demographic. You know, you have an awfully old pool uh, of engineers in, in a lot of companies like Boeing that they're, you know, tremendously experienced. That's fantastic. And that's great. But unfortunately, they're going to have to be replaced in a few years. And the cost of that might just be prohibitive from prohibited but by management that's, uh, well, put off by those expenses. Okay, I get that. And what worries me about the last part of that is that the, what we're coming back to, certainly for the company in question, is lions led by donkeys. You probably um, don't have to respond to that. Um, yes, um, I always also always want to point out the rather disturbing Hitlerian nature of that of that uh, of that comment. But uh, hold on that for one second, because we do have a live and in the flesh PhD uh, aerodynamicist and engineer uh, in, in our in our group, Ron. Yeah, I mean, when you think about, if you will, the war for talent, there's a lot of different things a young um, engineer uh, interested in aerospace or aerospace related things could do, right? I mean, you can go to, and just let's just throw a couple out there. You can go to SpaceX, you could go to Blue Origin, you could go to Rocket Lab, who all have had you know, successful space programs. Um, you could go to Virgin Galactic, you could go to Virgin Orbit, you could go to, there's a whole litany of them and there's more coming. And that's not even including uh, the EV tall companies that are right. that are coming along. So if, if you look at the you know the, the number of aerospace startups in in the space right now that have enough kind of critical mass to form, to attract some form of uh, capital that can attract talent and pay salaries and so on and so forth. There's a lot of them today. So you know, do you need to go to um, you know, Boeing or Airbus or, you know, Northrop or Lockheed, you don't. So, you know, those, those companies really need to focus on attracting and retaining talent. Um, one, I would, you know, I think I mentioned this before, that's always impressed me. And I think if you, if you, if you talk to them and dig down on the numbers, you'll find out that Northrop's done a really good job of attracting young talent and keeping people um, where maybe some of their peers haven't. Um, it's, it's, it's a definite challenge. It's a hard thing to do. And then the, the, the thing, I think you have to overlay on top of it, just broadly, there's a labor shortage of, of, of talented labor for a lot of industries, let alone talented technical labor. Um, if you look in the ranks of you know, aerospace, mechanical engineering departments that still focus on um, aerospace, both you know, the aeronautical side and the space side, um, they, they pulled way back. Um, so just the number of graduates that are coming out of school trained to do this kind of stuff um, are far fewer than they were in the past. So hiring good, eager, young talent, um, you got to try to do it. And if you're not trying, um, you're not going to get them. And I think it's just that simple. I should point out, right, B21 is, is among those programs, right, that if I was a young engineer drawn to a new generation of bomber, uh, right, I mean, it, it's, it's a big, ambitious um, you know, technological uh, program, and it, and it is it has been a company that has been investing in engineering uh, talent. And I should uh, point out uh, was um, at the uh, Air Force Navy uh, game yesterday. Frank Kendall, uh, the new Air Force Secretary, former ATNL, uh, was there, uh, and Carlos Del Toro, the new Secretary of the uh, Navy, were, were both there along with leadership of the both uh, of uh, of both services. Uh, I should point out, for the record, for those people who missed it, uh, Air Force. Um, I believe the adjective would be crushed uh, Navy. Um, uh, but a lovely and important game to commemorate 9-11. Uh, all, all I've got to say at the end of it, why I'm telling this rambling story, uh, is because Frank Kendall has talked about the importance of engineering and the importance of uh, growing a new generation of engineers, putting them into key leadership positions at a time which is going to be a very technological uh, age. Uh, us poli-sci and history majors are terrific, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you, there is no uh, substitute for engineering uh, and scientific talent. I just want to uh, take a moment. Uh, General Atomics and Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense uh, sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Iris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain uh, command and uh, control. I want to transition to uh, the 9-11 uh, portion of the discussion. Uh, and Ron, I'd, I'd like you to start us off. I want to 
get your guys' sense on how the defense and aerospace business has changed over the last uh, 20 years? What have been positive developments? What have been negative developments? And what are certain lessons uh, from this period uh, as uh, we go uh, forward? You know, one of the strains that I see is that we may you know, even though defense spending was going up, we continue to consolidate the industry. I can't imagine that there aren't folks who would like to see a deconsolidation of the industry at this point uh, to try to increase choice uh, at, a, at, a, at a time when uh, the future may look different uh, than what the future looks like today. A greater uh, eagerness to tap commercial technological sources, given how fast commercial industry uh, is, is, is moving. And I think that even the Heritage Prime sees some of these, these trends. Ron, you know, start us off. I mean, all of us have been covering the industry now for longer than 9-11. I mean, I would, I would, I would say that most of us are now covering uh, the industry. You know, it's been longer since 9-11 than our experience before 9-11, right? Ron, st start us off on this. And Sash would love your take and, and, and Richard yours. Yeah, maybe, maybe a good place to start was just some broad observations, right? If you go back to the famed Last Supper and the industry was you know, given marching orders to go forth and consolidate, that continued, as you mentioned, after the budget started to go up. And if you reverse the clock to you know, you know, pre-9-11, you know, what, what was going on pre-9-11? Well, um, at the time, um, it was you know, in today's parlance, you know, great power competition. Uh, focus was, you know, PACRIM, China, so on and so forth. And then when 9-11 happened, it changed the U.S. focus anyway to non-nation state terror threats and, you know, really kind of gave China a break, if you will. Um, you know, in a big picture, um, ultimately, China was probably one of the bigger beneficiaries of um, what happened uh, on 9-11 because it took the focus off of um, great power competition and shifted everything towards non-nation state terror and spending and programs and so on and so forth. Uh, when budgets started to go up, um, I think everybody knew they would go up, but I don't think anybody understood at the time um, the magnitude that budgets would go up. And then as budgets did go up, um, as you observed, it wasn't like the industry reversed course and started deconsolidating. It continued to consolidate. So you, know, you had this trend that was started because of you know budgets consolidating in a, you know, in a, in a post-Cold War world, you know, the whole talk of uh, peace dividend, so on and so forth. Well, that kind of went out the window. We switched to you know, non-nation non state terror, budgets continued to go up, consolidation continued to happen. So you're at this industry, you know, at a point in the industry today where you have less competition, I would argue you have less innovation, true innovation. Uh, most of the innovations happening is is largely just paid for by the customer companies, defense companies, I would argue, in general, don't want to take risks um, with their own you know, capital, um, unlike, like, unlike commercial companies. And then maybe let me add just one other quick thought on the commercial side, what's changed? Well, you know, the travel experience itself is just, that's never, it's just kind of gotten worse for many reasons, part of it being all the security stuff you have to deal with. Um, two, I think one of the big lessons we learned was Big isn't good, right? I mean, the A380 sort of is, is, is on its way out. It, it was a child of that time frame, and the same with the 74-8. Uh, and then finally, speed. Remember uh, the whole talk of um, uh, the Sonic Cruiser and all that, and that went away and became 78, which was a much, you know, much more successful program. In uh, in two years, I can't believe we're going to be commemorating less than two years. Uh, we'll be commemorating the 20th anniversary since the retirement of uh, one of uh, the most technologically impressive programs, which was uh, the Concorde, uh, ultimately, right? I mean, first time in aviation history, we really took a major step backwards. Uh, Sash, uh, you know, give, give us your sense, especially uh, given the rather extraordinary changes in European industrial footprint over the past two decades as well some of which driven by 9-11, but most of it not. Yeah, I mean, to start with, I, I, I fully subscribe to Ron's thesis that actually for two decades, China has been given a break. I didn't think China was much of a threat uh, in um, uh, 20 years ago. China was, was clearly a, well, China was somewhere between an adversary, a problem, and a partner uh, in the Pacific. 20 years ago, it's now quite and a market, clearly... And a market. And a, oh, oh, boy, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're in an emerging market. Now, it's a massive market, and it's a massive adversary. And, um, you know, 20 years of basically focusing on two counterinsurgency wars, huge, large-scale counterinsurgency wars, and not thinking about the 
or you know de-emphasizing the key issues i think has done def, you know western defense a huge um disservice similarly you know i think russia was given um uh, russia was given a, a two decade break the russian economy has performed massively less well than china but the russian military has started a process of recovery the russians politically and, and militarily have established a record of military adventurism which which was not challenged particularly in the crimea because the west in its broadest sense had other had other other priorities and russia is now clearly a problem for north northern and eastern europe and hence for for the whole of western europe that it was not 20 years ago in terms of you know industry uh your own or, or countries actually is probably more interesting some countries i think have evolved in defense terms much better than others in the last 20 years albeit in a very irregular way you know i mean germany has come from being good nato partners but fundamentally a bunch of peaceniks to realizing that they have responsibilities to lead or co-lead in europe they may not do it perfectly they don't do it perfectly it's a very very um irregular uh process for germany but you know germany is now setting step, stepping up to the plate and realizing that were something to happen in uh eastern europe they would have to deploy massive forces by the standards of anybody else in europe and lead uh you know lead the military process and that is now percolating all the way back through industry so you've now got an industry that actually thinks about what do we need as industry to supply our home nation first and our partner nation second uh to you know fight a major peer near peer adversary much closer to home than, than we would have expected and you know i think i think german industry although it is small is in much better shape now than it was uh 20 years ago and germany politically militarily is far more um uh you know quietly confident i don't want to use the word assertive because that has under you know undertones would rather not and i don't think it's sort of arrogant but i think you know they realize that actually they're quite good at some stuff and that the market is there for them other countries that i think have evolved well in the last 20 years yeah i think france and sweden sweden has gone from being you know neutral and neutral and neutral to being uh, you know realizing that they have to be part of the west because the alternatives are just far worse and swedish industry has evolved accordingly and i think is actually much better than when it was wholly focused on the swedish market i think france has done pretty well on the other hand um you know spain italy greece i think have marked time uh i don't think their um their militaries have done as good a job of of you know evolving and seeing beyond the the afghan and iraq um operations as perhaps they should have done and i think the uk has gone backwards uh i think that you know the, there's no doubt that the british army has hollowed out horribly and uh, british military leadership or rather unbelievably poor leadership has been wholly responsible for that um so you know it, it's been a very very mixed process in uh, in in europe but you know now i think it's much clearer or at least you know we don't have the distraction of uh afghanistan and iraq and countries have got to understand where they where the absolute focus is and it tends to be what you know the threat that's nearest you so for most of europe that's russia china is an option uh china is you know you, you have the choice as to what you do with china you don't have a choice with russia because they are less than 1500 nautical miles away richard well i agree completely with both ron and sash about the uh, the strategic um perhaps diversion aspect of the past 20 years you know a couple of uh, additional moments in time i remember I, one colleague turned to me i i think about about a dozen years ago and said you know in another decade or so every vfw lawn in the country is going to have maybe six or a dozen mraps on it i mean we just spent an entire procurement up cycle basically buying equipment for a contingency that then ceased to exist with the rather messy end of both Iraq and Afghanistan as as strategic priorities for the US and the other thought is that strategy matters and we took this strategic holiday it was almost like a strategic lobotomy back a, a dozen or however many years ago uh, you know and and you had people arguing against say the F22 
saying, well, we haven't even used it in Afghanistan without any kind of thinking about what are the actual long-term geopolitical ramifications of not having a high-end fighter, uh, but just having, well, a, a strike fighter. And uh, I, I think it's now coming back to bite us. And I, I think ultimately that's probably good for the next generation systems that are now in gestation, be it uh, B-21 or NGAD or, or hypersonics or whatever else, because we were now in the position of frankly having to catch up, having had yet another absurd strategic diversion towards counterinsurgency. This is something the country does every few decades, I guess. You know, we forget that there are real threats out there and we choose to do, well, yeah, a war of choice. Now, on a happier note, post 9-11, I'll, I'll say something, you know, that's quite encouraging, given the parallels with today. We did have this tremendous blow uh, to travel and tourism uh, and, and, of course, to the jetliner business that took place 9-11. It helped precipitate a nasty two-year commercial market downturn um, and, of course, resulted in, uh, you know, in, uh, well, a couple of, uh, a couple of points uh, loss in air travel growth or I should say air travel reduction back in, in 2001, uh, to say nothing, of course, of the, the sheer horror, uh, both physical and psychological of this experience. But you know what? We came back very strong. I mean, you look at both air travel demand, it has exceeded past numbers in terms of air travel growth. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I think it, if, if long-term sustainable had been in the, the 4.9% range, I think the previous decade was like 5.5. So people eagerly got back into the system. And of course, the jetliner business had an incredibly good two decades in terms of output. It, it, it's growth. You know, we had a double cycle uh, between 2004 and 2018. Uh, normally a cycle lasts seven years. That one lasted, of course, 14. And if it weren't for the MAC shutdown, it would have kept going. So it, things which was Which was... Which was one of the things that prompted you to say, right, that the cycle may be over, right? That we may not. I remember you having said that uh, at at one point, not to well, put you on a spot or anything. I, 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 you know, I, I sort of said it might be moderating. I, uh, I, I argued that perhaps things were not going to be as terrifyingly awful as the days when you had a thirty five percent bust cycle. But, you know, I, I, I warned for years, I'll, I'll give myself a little credit here, I warned for years that we couldn't just keep growing. But yeah, I guess I am guilty of thinking, having thought that the bus cycle wouldn't be quite as severe. And well, joke's on me, this pandemic didn't result in a 3% reduction in air travel. It resulted in a 66% reduction in air travel, which of course precipitated a 50% drop in jetliner output. So, you know, it, it's, it's sort of one of those, yes, it's, it's worse than you ever could have imagined. And you, <laughs> I mean, well, things have a way of surprising. Right. But I mean, you know, in, in fairness, right. I mean, it took a centennial pandemic in order to be able to do this. Right. I mean, so, That's you know, don't, don't, don't beat yourself up too badly on this, you know, even though, uh, and, and I, and for, and for what it's worth, right. I mean, you would say, you would ask the question whether or not we're in a post cycle world. Um, so I'm just being slightly cute on that. Let me, let me ask a, a partnership question, right. Um, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, drove a very globalized approach. The United States found that Britain had better uh, combat electronic warfare, uh, or the French had better combat electronic warfare uh, systems, armor plating, uh, whether it was coming from Sweden or from Israel or elsewhere in the world, bullet supplies, um, technological innovation, uh, newer forms of, of, of sensing. Uh, you know, the, the wars themselves served as uh, laboratories where American soldiers who were convinced they had the best of everything ended up coming up, you know, rubbing into contact with German soldiers who actually might have better vehicles than they did, uh, ultimately. And this cross-pollination uh, drove uh, unmanned uh, aviation advances and our allies and partners who ended up buying uh, Reapers, uh, just to say the General Atomics uh, signature project. Uh, product, whether it was Predators or Reapers, became uh, popular uh, worldwide as the United States wanted to give tools to our allies and partners. Um, that was a bit of a stretch at the time because there were still some very bi-American tendencies that had to be overcome. 
Uh, we, we saw that, unfortunately, rear its head repeatedly. The Afghans uh, would have been better off operating Russian helicopters instead of us pushing them into buying American uh, helicopters, even if they were su su superior uh, in, in, in some instances. And now we seem like to be rounding another corner that the administration that keeps saying we're back and we're working with allies and partners uh, is again pushing by American con constraints. I mean, have we have we are we coming full circle over the past two decades to much necessary greater openness to shifting back to greater protectionism under the guise of the pandemic? But it's not really about the pandemic. I would argue that everyone is that and maybe this is partly about the pandemic because of course it has renewed fears of uh, supply chain disruptions and the need for greater industrial sovereignty but also operational sovereignty technological sovereignty uh, these are all part of the sort of new managed trade mantra that appeared to be kind of a bipartisan agenda in washington you know, both Republicans and Democrats seem to have, uh, if not a fondness for, if not industrial policy, then at least a greater degree of consideration. And, you know, you're seeing this in other countries too. If you told me 30 years ago that we would see another huge wave of national combat aircraft programs blooming, I, I would have thought, yeah, no way, no way. The, you know, the Joint Strike Fighter is the last fighter <laughs> or something like that. I, I would have thought that export-driven fighters would rule the roost rather than, you know, Turkey, South Korea, uh, of course, India yet again, and, and Taiwan yet again, and everyone else having a, a, a national combat aircraft, obviously, in, in, in Britain, several of them. So this whole emphasis on, well, homegrown solutions, uh, I, I think, has, has, has come roaring back. Ron? Yeah, I mean, don't don't forget, um, defense spending is a form of economic stimulus, right? I mean, in any country, uh, particularly countries that have maybe exported some of their um, industrial production to other countries, uh, your your domestic supply chain um, almost, you know, by definition in the U.S. legally in other countries may be the case. Um, it's a in a high tech industrial supply chain. It's an and it's economic stimulus and it's jobs, right? I don't think you can separate that. So, you know, when I look at the, you know, partnering, if you will, over the last 20 years, I mean, there was some, but it was pretty limited, honestly, right? I mean, I don't think about the U.S. arsenal as being just full of, you know, other countries' stuff, right? Our, you know, tell me I'm wrong, but I mean, well, but maybe, I, maybe I, on the edges, but... Right. Well, but I mean, I think, you know, a lot of companies managed to expand their footprints in the United States. They started selling stuff to the U.S. military. They set up proxy companies and special security arrangements. And um, whether that was uh, Finn Mechanica that became Leonardo, whether that was Talas, whether that was Safran, uh, whether it was Airbus, uh, each one of them started to do very, very meaningful space business, for example, right? I mean, all, all the, the kind of, um, you know, integrated intelligence uh, and geospatial intelligence. I mean, Jim Clapper deserves enormous credit for that as being one of the patron saints uh, of, uh, 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 of geospatial intelligence. We opened the doors to foreign companies being imagery suppliers, uh, intelligence but, partners, technological but, but. partners. But and, and, guess... we, and we appear to be shifting that and the new language, whether it's in NRO contracts or elsewhere, is thou shalt not be a subsidiary of a foreign company if you want to bid for this, this work. And it does seem like a gate closing, which could be problematic. I mean, my only interest in this is that the United States and its military and its allies and partners have the best military capabilities possible. And I feel that if you shut the rest of the world off, that's really not a good way to do it, especially when you're trying to force the rest of the world to buy your stuff in the form of F-35 or anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue with you on that on those points. However, um, what I would say, I mean, using DRS as an example, uh, a foreign company bought DRS, but DRS still operated essentially as a wholly U.S. company that had, you know, a firewall and a reporting chain into, uh, you know, an Italian entity. But it was largely a U.S. company continuing to do business like it did when it was an independent company. And then on imagery, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I bring up what future imagery architecture that was, you know, uh, that didn't really work out. And you know, there was issues around earth imagery and that gave birth to the whole commercial earth imagery space. Right. So there was, you know, necessity is always the mother of invention. Right. So you know, my interpretation of opening the doors for um, you know, how can I say 
you know, foreign assets in earth imageries because our own programs largely were floundering, right? And, and something had to get done. And allies and partners were putting commercial space capabilities up that that could uh, fill some of those voids. Some of them created specifically to get around, um, you know, U.S. Uh, by American and I, I excuse me, U.S. ITAR uh, prov provision. Sash, let me give you the last word uh, on on this. Go ahead, take it away in any direction you want to take it. I, I I'm afraid I I agree with Ron. I think that the um, the interoperability and the the you know the cross purchasing. What I mean, really, what what this is is that we're, this is a variance of the discussion about the two-way street, which dominated uh, discussions in NATO from about the mid nineteen sixties to the uh, late nineteen eighties, and you know who buys what from from whom. And I would argue actually that you know from the point of view of Britain in particular, more British stuff was bought by the US in the late 60s to um, uh, late 70s than just any other period. You're absolutely right that European companies came and bought businesses in the US and uh, to an extent vice versa um, during the last 20 years. But actually, you know, when, I, when I look at that, do the maths, you have a couple of UK companies, Ultra Electronics, uh, currently being bid for, Cobham, which has been bid for, uh, Megit, um, uh, also being bid for, which were very, very successful at expanding their U.S. footprint um, to such a degree that they became U.S. companies with U.K. quotes rather than the other way around. Um, it doesn't seem to have done them a, a you know, huge amount of good. Um, otherwise, BA Systems is the standout in terms of having 40% you know, probably of its revenues coming from the U.S. and being very much a, you know, a U.S. onshore player. Um, but in terms of what is sold from your, you know, your allies, Europe and Asia into the US, I, I think it's very much at, you know, at, at the margin. Um, and the cost has been um, surrendering a degree of economic and um, industrial sovereignty. And I think that we will return back to a very, very insular or inward looking uh, approach for a while because the, the, you know, the emphasis, the priority on getting stuff to the warfighter, which was really what made all militaries very, very open to buying from, from the supplier that had stuff available quickest. It wasn't actually the best, but it was uh, speed of delivery. That impetus is now gone. And, I, uh, you know, unless we go back to another major war, I don't think we'll see that again for a, a long time to come. So, uh, you know, economic insularity, I think, is going to be the name of the next decade. Do you do you think uh, last question in roughly thirty seconds? If this administration is going to put impediments to any foreign-owned subsidiary or foreign-owned company or what have you doing business with the Pentagon, is there going to be a backlash with allies and partners? And doesn't this feed in to the entire European drive to say, "Hey, look, we really do need strategic autonomy uh, from the United States because this whole notion of a two-way street is is really." closed and what are the repercussions of that and if i, I say go, this I, as a free yeah. trader transatlantic yeah i don't need 30 trader. seconds say yup you bet so it does it will have negative repercussions for washington absolutely and yeah yes but babago i i would add um that takes a commitment to spend that's right 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 so if 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 other countries aren't going to commit to spend to the levels that they need to, to develop kit that they're going to need, they need to go into the open market and buy it. And you're going to probably buy it in the open market from folks, countries that you identify as allies who have it available on the market, which, you know, the U S will and does. All right. So it's, you know, I think it, I'm going to say strategically, it makes sense that it could be negative, but ultimately the countries themselves have to make the commitment to raise their own defense spending from maybe 1% of GDP to 2% of GDP to 3% of GDP to 4% of GDP. And do many countries in Europe have the stomach to do that? And but, the um, one country that does, the only country that does, of course, is France. And they're leading the way. They always have led the way in the sovereignties. There's clearly a relationship. Um, I, I, I would say the United States cannot tell other allies and partners to be fiscally as irresponsible as we are being. Ultimately, anybody, not everybody can borrow $27 trillion and spend well beyond its means and not make any trade-offs. 
and other countries and Eurozone countries do make those trade-offs. And at the end of the day, that's what will govern them. My point is not what they should do to buy their own stuff. I'm saying if the wheel has been invented, buy it from your ally and partner. If that's from London or Paris or Jerusalem or any or Oslo or Stockholm or anywhere else uh, to satisfy our own needs, when you set up that kind of an impediment, um, that's problematic because one of the great breakthrough innovations you can take advantage of may come from a company called Saab. It may come from a company called Dassault. It could come from a country company called Airbus. And I, I think that that's problematic. But you know, how does Airbus compete for the next tanker order if there are strictures like this that are either formally on the books by manner of administration policy, given that President Biden said what he said uh, of buying American, and, and how much of this... Um, Right. And, and I would argue that's problematic because Boeing has de demonstrated that KC-46 is not that good of an airplane at this point, unfortunately. And so we may want competition. I find a structure like this is problematic because it forecloses that kind of uh, cooperation. I, I mean, let me let me speak for my peers on this one. I don't think anybody would argue with that premise. Right. I mean, you know, but I think that's where we're going right. is what right. I'm saying. But I mean, here, a case, another case in point. Right. And why why did the U.S. ever buy? littoral combat ships the way they did, where they could have sourced them from multiple sources in Europe, where they could have gotten very good ships that would have served that purpose quite well, a lot you know, quicker, less expensive, you know, and, and that, that wasn't even pursued. Uh, well, I mean, it, it sort of was, right? I mean, the LCS was an Italian design, uh, at least on the Freedom class. The, um, uh, the Trimaran is an Australian design. So, I mean, the, these were the product of international cooperation. Indeed, the Navy changed some of its own rules and regulations to uh, allow the foreign subsystems on it. And if you look at it, the, the Navy's uh, future frigate is an, a, a Franco-Italian design. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that we do go out and we do that. I just always think it's problematic to have that, those sorts of uh, strictures and limitations. And if it is that, if that's the direction we're going in, it's going to be very problematic. We can talk more about that later, gentlemen. Thank you very, very much. Uh, real pleasure uh, having you on. Thanks very much uh, for the thoughtful discussion uh, as, as always, as we round out uh, what is a, a commemorative weekend uh, where the events of 9-11, those who lost their lives uh, that day and have lost their lives since um, uh, deserve uh, remembering. Thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Avago, uh, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Really appreciate you doing this, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.